You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 283 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the show. Okay, so of course you aren't jumping into the mix right here with the sixth episode of the Vicksburg story arc, are you? I mean, no, you've already listened to the first five episodes, right? So, that means we can pick right back up where we left off last time. And when we left off last time, Charles Rivers Ellett was setting out with the Queen of the West on his second raid down the Mississippi with orders to, quote, burn, sink, and destroy everything of military value he encountered. Despite the bold tone of his orders, David Dixon Porter cautioned the youthful Ellett to watch out for the Confederate gunboat William H. Webb, which was rumored to be fitting out somewhere up the Red River. Ellett reached the mouth of the Red River on February 14, 1863, and promptly captured another Confederate steamboat. From the crew, he learned of several other vessels huddled for protection under the guns of Fort Taylor, later renamed Fort DeRussi, about 40 miles up the Red. Ellett rashly decided to dash upriver and capture or destroy the rebel ships. When Queen of the West came under fire from Fort Taylor, she ran aground and was disabled by a shot through her steam lines. Jubilant Confederates seized the ram before she could be destroyed. In the confusion, Ellett and some of his crew managed to escape on the previously captured steamboat. Three nights before Queen of the West had approached Fort Taylor, Lieutenant Commander George Brown took the new ironclad USS Indianola past Vicksburg without harm. The Indianola's crew was under strength and inexperienced, but the ironclad could make better than two knots against the Mississippi's current unlike the slower turtles, and so Porter decided to send her down the river on the chance she could safely return upstream in an emergency. Porter expected that a miniature flotilla composed of a powerful ironclad, a speedy ram, and one or two captured steamboats would give the Union Navy effective control of the Mississippi between Vicksburg and Port Hudson. 
Somewhere below Vicksburg, Brown encountered Ellet and learned of the loss of Queen of the West. Shaken by this unexpected news, Brown nonetheless continued downstream and briefly reestablished a one-ship Union blockade of the mouth of the Red River. Ellet, meanwhile, returned to DeSoto Point to face Porter's wrath. Major General Richard Taylor, commanding the Confederates' district of West Louisiana, was a bold and energetic officer. He regarded Indianola not as a threat, but as a tempting target. While his engineers refloated and repaired Queen of the West, Taylor hatched a plan to capture or destroy the Union ironclad and regain control of the Vicksburg-Port Hudson corridor. George Brown also considered Indianola to be a sitting duck. After a week at the mouth of the Red, he picked up rumors that Taylor was planning an attack on his isolated vessel. Brown decided to abandon the blockade and head back up the Mississippi. As a handy, transportable source of fuel, Indianola actually had a couple of coal barges lashed alongside her, and Brown decided to keep them there, since they would provide protection against the now rebel-operated ram Queen of the West. The barges, naturally, were an immense drag, though, and so Indianola made only slow progress against the current. Then, on the evening of February 24th, Brown sighted smoke astern. A few hours later, the William H. Webb Queen of the West, and a pair of smaller vessels approached out of the gloom. The Union ironclad was only about 25 miles from DeSoto Point, but Brown knew the jig was up. He turned downstream and cleared for action. The makeshift Confederate squadron was manned by Army volunteers and commanded by Major Joseph Brent, a former attorney serving as Department Commander Taylor's Chief of Ordnance and Artillery. Despite a complete lack of experience in maritime warfare, Brent pitched right into the fight. The speedy Confederates rammed the unwieldy ironclad, tore away the coal barges, and smashed a hole in her stern. Brown surrendered after 90 minutes after failing to seriously damage any of the rebel vessels. The crippled Indianola settled to the bottom in about 10 feet of water near Davis Bend, where Jefferson Davis and his older brother Joseph had their plantations. Fewer than a dozen sailors and soldiers were killed or wounded in the fight, but nearly every member of the Indianola's crew, including Brown, was captured. Undoubtedly amazed at his victory, Brent led his ships upstream to Vicksburg, to have his battered bows repaired. Meanwhile, a Confederate salvage crew boarded Indianola to determine whether she could be refloated. The following day, February 26th, Brent returned to the wreck with news that a second Federal ironclad was approaching. With his ships leaking like sieves, the Major couldn't risk another fight and so withdrew down the Mississippi to the sanctuary of the Red River. Toward evening, a dark, low-lying vessel slowly rounded Davis Bend and halted a short distance above the wreck of the Indianola. 
the salvage crew, abandoned, alarmed, and possibly inebriated, set the captured ironclad on fire and fled into the woods along the river bank. Thus ended the last opportunity to put a Confederate ironclad into service on the Mississippi. The vessel that so unnerved the Confederates was actually no Yankee ironclad at all, but rather a clever bit of trickery. You see, two days earlier, when Porter heard the sound of gunfire below Vicksburg, he correctly guessed that the rebels were engaging Indianola. Unfortunately, there was little he could do since all of his rams, tinclads, and timberclads were committed to operations upriver. Although anxious about the fate of Indianola, Porter was unwilling to risk sending more of his precious ironclads into an uncertain situation without an escort of swifter vessels. Instead, he decided to float a dummy gunboat downstream. He hoped that the rebels would be fooled into thinking that Indianola was being reinforced and they would withdraw. How much faith Porter had in this harebrained scheme isn't known, but his carpenters quickly assembled a 300-foot raft around a coal barge and topped it with a casemate, side-wheel covers, smokestacks, and guns, all crudely made of logs and lumber. The entire contraption was coated with tar, and the words, Deluded people, cave in! were painted on the fake side-wheel covers in huge letters. A U.S. flag flying from the stern, along with smudge pots to produce smoke, completed the disguise. Porter reported with pride that the dummy gunboat required less than 12 hours' labor and cost the taxpayers only $8.23. That night, the newest Union ironclad was towed to the tip of DeSoto Point and released so that the current would carry it downriver. The Vicksburg batteries fired dozens of shells at the strange vessel, but did it no serious damage. The barge drifted into an eddy near the lower end of the canal and began going round in circles, but eventually the current caught it again, and it resumed its journey downstream. It glided on and finally came to rest on a mud flat less than a mile from the wreck of Indianola. The stunt worked beyond Porter's wildest dreams and embarrassed the Confederates. But it couldn't disguise the fact that both of the Federal vessels sent down to interdict Rebel River traffic on the Mississippi and Red Rivers had been lost. For three weeks, Ellett and Brown had halted the flow of supplies between the two halves of the Confederacy, but bad luck, questionable decisions, and a vigorous enemy response scuttled the Union effort. Not hesitating to throw his subordinates under the bus, Porter explained to Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells that, quote, My plans were well laid, only badly executed. I can give orders, but I cannot give officers good judgment. On the rebel side, Taylor and Brent had demonstrated what could be accomplished with an aggressive and opportunistic defense. Though they landed only a glancing blow against the federal naval juggernaut, it was enough to secure Confederate control of the Vicksburg-Port Hudson Corridor for another six weeks.
While rams and ironclads battled for control of the Mississippi River below Vicksburg, two curious operations were taking place north of the city. In earlier times, a maze of streams formed a continuous navigable passage through the bottomlands between Memphis and Vicksburg. The northern entrance to this Byzantine waterway was Yazoo Pass, a stream that branched off from Moon Lake, an old channel of the Mississippi River, roughly opposite Helena, Arkansas. Water flowed from Moon Lake through Yazoo Pass, the Coldwater River, the Tallahatchie River, and finally the Yazoo River, before returning to the Mississippi just above Vicksburg. In 1856, a levee was constructed across Yazoo Pass to facilitate draining and clearing the rich alluvial soil in that portion of the Mississippi Valley. It occurred to Grant that if the levee at Yazoo Pass was breached, a joint Army-Navy expedition could move through the web of waterways and reach Haines Bluff from the north. It would be an extremely roundabout flanking movement. But it might work. The Yazoo Pass route offered another potential benefit as well. The spring campaigning season was approaching, and Grant was worried about the safety of his dwindling force in the Department of the Tennessee. That's because three of his four corps were present in the vicinity of Vicksburg, while only Hurlbut's Sixteenth Corps was stretched between Memphis and Corinth. Van Dorn's attempt to recover northern Mississippi the previous October failed at Corinth, but only by a slim margin, and a future rebel offensive might succeed. Therefore, Grant wanted the Yazoo Pass expedition to make a short side trip and burn the railroad bridge across the Yalabusha River at Grenada, the same span that Hobie's raid had failed to destroy a few months earlier. With the bridge destroyed, Pemberton couldn't use the Mississippi Central Railroad to support a northward rebel thrust. But here, Grant was worried about nothing because Pemberton never considered for a moment the sort of bold counterstroke the federal commander feared. After his discussions with Jefferson Davis and Joe Johnston in December 1862. Pemberton was content to remain on the defensive and react to Grant's moves. He was comfortable with his expanding arc of fortifications protecting Vicksburg's landward approaches, and had no intention of going anywhere. The Federals blew a hole in the levee at Yazoo Pass on February third, eighteen sixty-three. Water poured from the Mississippi through the breach and into the old channel. Inundating the swampy countryside as far as the eye could see, Lieutenant Colonel James Wilson, the military engineer in charge of this phase of the operation, reported that water surged through the breach, quote, "like nothing else I ever saw except Niagara Falls. Logs, trees, and great masses of earth were torn away with the greatest of ease. The work is a perfect success." By February twenty-fourth, the torrent of water had subsided somewhat, and Union gunboats and transports began passing through the levee into the old channel. The naval force under Lieutenant Commander Watson Smith consisted of the untried ironclad Chillicothe, the Turtle Baron de Kalb, six tin-clads, 
a ram, and 14 light draft transports carrying Brigadier General Leonard Ross's division from McClernand's Corps. The success of the operation depended upon the Federals reaching Haines Bluff before the Confederates realized what was happening. But Smith proceeded at a snail's pace. The flotilla took four days to negotiate the 14 miles between the Mississippi and the Coldwater, and another six days to steam 30 miles down the Coldwater to the Tallahatchie. Though the circuitous route offered serious difficulties to navigation, and overhanging trees played havoc with smokestacks and superstructures, still, Smith's lack of urgency is inexplicable. The natural levees along the riverbanks stood above the water, and the Union sailors and soldiers encountered substantial numbers of Southern civilians. Surgeon Henry Huntsman of the 5th Iowa noted, quote, Truly we are in an enemy country. Most of the houses seem deserted, and where citizens have been sitting about their doors, a sullen silence prevails. No expression or evidence of welcome to our troops. A soldier in the 33rd Iowa was struck by the very different reaction of the slaves, who saw the Federals as liberators, not invaders, and greeted them with, quote, the most extravagant expressions of wonder and joy. Weeks before the Federal expedition got underway, Isaac Brown, the Confederate naval officer who had once commanded CSS Arkansas, that Isaac Brown, warned Pemberton that the Yazoo Pass route was a backdoor to Vicksburg. When Brown learned on February 9th that the Yankees had blown the levee, he hurried upstream from Yazoo City with every available rebel soldier and sailor and began felling trees into the narrow channel. Despite Smith's deliberate approach and Brown's efforts to render the approach even more difficult, nevertheless the Union flotilla inched forward. By early March, spring had arrived, and the Federals aboard the gunboats and transports had a clear view of their target, the bluffs forming a green wall against the eastern sky. Pemberton had mirrored Grant's strategic moves by shifting most of his army from Grenada to Vicksburg during December and January. He left only Major General William Wing Loring's division behind to hold the fortified Yalabusha River line against Hurlbut's Corps in western Tennessee. When Isaac Brown sent word that the Federals were approaching via the Yazoo Pass route, Pemberton directed Wing Loring to move westward along the south bank of the Yalabusha and block the enemy advance. And so Loring personally led one of his brigades down from the high ground into the waterlogged alluvial plain. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. A short distance west of the town of Greenwood, Loring constructed an earthen fort near the point where the Yalabusha and Tallahatchie joined to form the Yazoo. Fort Pemberton was barely above river level and initially contained only two heavy guns, but it was surrounded by swamps, which made an infantry assault impossible. Loring also brought a derelict steamship up from Yazoo City and sank her in the narrow channel next to the fort. The wreck was Star of the West. Some of you may recognize that name, since two years earlier, then-President James Buchanan in the waning days of his administration, had directed the government to charter Star of the West and sent her to deliver supplies to Fort Sumter in the harbor at Charleston, South Carolina. On January 9, 1861, rebel batteries had fired on her, though, and drove her away. Many people consider the incident to be the first shots that were fired in the Civil War. At any rate, now... After various adventures, Star of the West lay on the muddy bottom of the Tallahatchie near Fort Pemberton, hundreds of miles from the sea. Loring's men were putting the finishing touches on Fort Pemberton when the leading Federal ships came into view. Had Smith moved more quickly, he would have reached the site before the fort was completed. As it was, on March 11th, 13th, and 16th, Smith engaged Fort Pemberton with his two ironclads. However, because of the narrow channel and the location of the fort, the Union gunboats had to attack head-on, which effectively made them stationary targets for the Confederate gunners. The Chillicothe, like most of the second-generation river ironclads, was poorly designed and even more poorly constructed by corrupt or careless contractors. The iron gunport covers and the wooden backing of her armored casemate soon buckled alarmingly under the repeated blows from rebel solid shot, and she was forced to withdraw. Despite this unexpected problem, Smith still might have taken Fort Pemberton had he simply steamed ahead with one or both of his ironclads and pulverized the small earthwork at close range. But Smith wasn't Farragut or Porter. While Smith dawdled, Loring strengthened Fort Pemberton and brought in additional men and guns from Grenada. Federal reinforcements arrived as well, and another half-hearted effort was made against the Confederate fortification, but to no avail. 
The back door to Vicksburg, by way of Yazoo Pass, was sealed shut. Soon, the battered flotilla of gunboats and transports was on its way back to the Mississippi. Because of the initiative demonstrated by the Confederate commanders, Isaac Brown and Wing Loring, the rebels had achieved a tidy, tactical, and moral victory. The end of the Yazoo Pass expedition couldn't come soon enough for the thousands of Union soldiers jammed aboard the transports. Officers were assigned cabins, but enlisted men were expected to make the best of it in the space available on each deck. Soldiers on the lower decks shared their living space with the mules and horses that had been brought aboard, while the men on the upper decks were exposed to wind and rain. Fires on board weren't permitted for obvious reasons, so men tried to cook their rations by placing meat and dough near fireboxes, boilers, steam pipes, or anything else that radiated heat. Sanitation was a nightmare aboard the overcrowded transports, which were lined up bowed astern in narrow, sluggish streams. One soldier lamented that, quote, In some respects, it was the hardest of our soldiering. Diarrhea was universal, almost unanimous. Few of us remained in as good health as usual, and many contracted diseases, to whose sad end the lonely graveyard on the bare Helena Hills within the next few months bore witness. Though the Yazoo Pass expedition was a failure, most of the federal participants, soldiers and sailors alike, considered their escape from the miserable bottomlands to be a victory of sorts. One man said, When our boat reached the Mississippi River, we fired a grand salute of all the muskets on board, and the one six-pound brass field piece on the bow also, as a kind of greeting to the noble river. Cramped up as we had been for almost six weeks on the narrow rivers in the swamps, it gave us a great feeling of relief to come out again on the broad Mississippi where there was room enough to breathe. Even while the ill-fated Yazoo Pass expedition was underway, David Dixon Porter decided to try another route that he believed might enable a joint Army-Navy expedition to reach the Yazoo River north of Haines Bluff. A vast amount of water had poured through the breach in the levee at Yazoo Pass, and Porter reasoned that the water level in the bayous that laced the bottomlands had risen enough to float gunboats and transports through streams that were not normally navigable. On March 12th, while Smith and Loring dueled at Fort Pemberton, Porter explored the downstream portion of the Yazoo Pass route. He made a personal reconnaissance up Steele's Bayou, which flows into the lower Yazoo River opposite the mouth of Chickasaw Bayou, the scene of Sherman's disastrous assault the previous December. Information gleaned from maps and helpful contrabands indicated that the upper portion of Steele's Bayou connects with Black Bayou, which leads to Deer Creek, which in turn reaches the Rolling Fork, which flows into the Big Sunflower, which enters the Yazoo about 10 miles above Haines Bluff. 
Once in the Yazoo, the Federals could turn north and take Yazoo City and Fort Pemberton from the rear, or turn south and operate against Haynes Bluff. All in all, the Serpentine Route was about 130 miles in length. Porter secured Grant's agreement for a joint Army-Navy reconnaissance and force up Steele's Bayou. By this time, Grant may have been a bit leery of Porter's schemes, but he was impressed by the naval officer's energy. The two men were alike in their approach to the Vicksburg problem, that is, determined to maintain the initiative, probe for weaknesses, and seek opportunities. Both also intuitively understood that if Pemberton remained passive behind his fortifications, which he seemed content to do, then it was only a matter of time before they found a way to get at Vicksburg. On March 14th, five turtles and assorted smaller craft, with Porter in personal command, steamed up the Yazoo River and turned north into Steele's Bayou. Grant accompanied the expedition for 30 miles. Then, satisfied that at least part of the route was practicable, Grant returned to the Mississippi River. Grant sent Sherman after Porter with as many federal troops as could be crammed aboard the few available light draft transports. The Army only had a limited number of such vessels, and most of them were immobilized on the Coldwater and Tallahatchie Rivers, awaiting the outcome of the impasse at Fort Pemberton. Exactly. Well, at any rate, the pace of Porter's expedition slowed when he turned into Black Bayou, a narrow stream that apparently had never been navigated by anything larger than a rowboat. But the ironclads cleared their own path by ramming trees to loosen the roots, then backing up and pulling them down with ropes. Overhanging branches were a constant hazard to smokestacks and upper works, and decks were soon swarming with snakes, raccoons, and other local wildlife. Porter posted sailors with brooms to sweep the unwelcome visitors overboard. Despite these difficulties, the gunboats made steady progress, an indication of what might have been accomplished by the Yazoo Pass expedition if Smith had possessed as much drive as Porter. The flotilla reached Deer Creek and turned north toward the confluence with the Rolling Fork. The natural levees bordering Deer Creek were high and dry, and for the first time the Federal expedition encountered signs of civilization. By March 19th, the Confederates finally grasped what Porter was trying to do. Up to this point, the Federals had been opposed only by rebels commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Samuel Ferguson, who did everything possible to harass the Yankees, but he didn't have enough troops to have much effect. Then, Brigadier General Winfield Scott Featherston hurried his brigade of Confederates from Haines Bluff to the confluence of Deer Creek and the Rolling Fork, to reinforce Ferguson's small command. The rebels moved most of the way on flatboats and barges towed by steamboats. Lacking artillery, they attempted to stop the Federal ironclads with axes and muskets. Porter was within two miles of the rolling fork when he encountered a tangle of felled trees blocking the channel. 
Heavy musket fire erupted from the swamps on either side of Deer Creek and drove the Union sailors inside their gunboats. Porter attempted to sweep the enemy out of the nearby woods with blast of grape shot, but found that the height of the natural levees shielded the rebels and rendered his guns almost useless. Stymied, Porter sent to Sherman for help. But while waiting for the Federal infantry, whose light draft transports were some 20 miles to the rear, Porter grew impatient and decided to take on the Confederates himself. He sent a landing party ashore equipped with muskets, pistols, swords, and a pair of howitzers. Demonstrating a good grasp of tactics and terrain, the sailors seized the highest ground in the vicinity, an Indian mound, and drove the rebels away from Deer Creek. The ironclads resumed butting their way forward. By the next day, they were nearly 70 miles from their starting point back at the mouth of Steele's Bayou and only a few hundred yards from the Rolling Fork. And that was as far as they got. Confederate reinforcements arrived with a battery of field artillery that forced the Union sailors from the exposed decks and back into the safety of their ironclads. When the rebels began chopping down and dropping cypress trees into Deer Creek behind the ironclads, Porter realized that he was in serious trouble. He sent a second courier, a runaway slave from a nearby plantation, to Sherman. Then he put his men on half rations, made ready to repel borders, and prepared to blow up the ironclads rather than let them fall into Confederate hands. When Sherman learned that Porter and his ironclads were trapped, he disembarked Colonel Giles Smith's brigade and sent it forward on foot. Then he dispatched transports back to the Mississippi to bring up additional troops. Colonel Smith made good time along the natural levee beside Deer Creek and reached Porter late on the afternoon of March 21st. His 800 men soon cleared away the rebels and, with the help of the sailors, cleared away the trees as well. Porter had nearly lost his turtles, the heart of the Mississippi squadron, to a few hundred Confederate soldiers in a swamp. Exhausted by the dreadful experience, he ordered the withdrawal of the gunboats to continue, despite the presence now of Federal infantry. The channel was cleared by midnight, and the ironclads resumed creeping in reverse the next day, with Smith's troops moving along the banks to keep the enemy at bay. But Ferguson had not yet given up hope of trapping the Yankee gunboats. After backtracking six miles, the Federals encountered another barricade of felled trees and a hail of musketry from Confederates who had circled around the slow-moving ironclads. Smith readied his Union infantry for a fight when, in the nick of time, Sherman arrived with reinforcements and scattered the rebels. A relieved porter reported to Gideon Wells, I do not know when I felt more pleased to see that gallant officer. A week later, the transports and gunboats, much the worse for wear, emerged from the Yazoo and re-entered the broad, welcome expanse of the Mississippi. (music) 
By the end of March 1863, both the Yazoo Pass and Steele's Bayou operations were effectively over. Temporarily demoralized by the twin setbacks, Porter concluded that Grant should return to Memphis and attempt to reach Vicksburg by a more traditional overland approach from western Tennessee. Grant was also disappointed by the string of failures, but he understood that a return to Memphis was impossible. People in the North would interpret a withdrawal from Vicksburg as an admission of defeat, and there was no reason to expect that a second overland campaign would be any more successful than the first. Therefore, Grant decided that the Army of the Tennessee and the Mississippi Squadron would stay and find a way to achieve victory. But victory, when it came, would not take place north of Vicksburg. The string of recent failures to find a way to get at the Confederate citadel from the north had convinced Ulysses S. Grant that his initial assessment of the situation was correct and so he now returned to the idea of moving his army down the west side of the Mississippi River and crossing to the east bank somewhere below Vicksburg. Winter had given way to spring, and the long southern summer was approaching. The Mississippi was finally beginning to drop, and so in a few weeks the land on the Louisiana shore would emerge from the spring floods, and the roads would be firm enough to support an army on the march. But before Grant could put his plan into motion, he had to take into account developments done in southern Louisiana. Because one day, while Sherman's soldiers at the lower end of the DeSoto Point Canal watched in amazement, a massive warship steamed up the Mississippi from the south and dropped anchor just out of range of the Vicksburg batteries. That meant Admiral Farragut had returned. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is War on the Mississippi, Grant's Vicksburg Campaign by Jeffrey Korn and the editors of Time Life Books. This is one of the volumes in that classic Time Life series of Civil War books with the silver covers. And while the narrative is okay, we really recommend them for the illustrations and the maps, which are wonderful and make the books great just to sit down and page through. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We want to thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade who signed up over on Patreon this past week. Ross, Greg, Jeff, Jay, Bill, Daniel, and Douglas. We have another members episode just about ready to go, and then we hope to shoot a couple of short videos while we're at Gettysburg that we plan on putting up on Patreon after we get back. Um, so yeah, for you members of the Strawfoot Brigade, there you go. And then we also wanted to thank Matthew and Zeke for their donations this past week. Those are always much appreciated. And last but not least, we wanted to let you know that we'll be off the air for the next two weeks as we head to Pennsylvania to see my family and to visit Gettysburg. So if you are listening to this in real time, that means the next new episode in the Vicksburg story arc won't be out until June 30th. 
We'll probably be posting a few photos from Gettysburg on Facebook and Twitter, though, so you can keep up with us that way. And if you're missing the show while we're gone, you can always head over to Patreon, where you'll find almost 90 members' episodes waiting for you. Okay, so thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.